Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Then gets it in for Simons. Three seconds, two seconds. Simons for the win. It's good. That was the sound you heard last night if you made the brave decision to stay up for the Brooklyn Nets' late-night road matchup with the Portland Trailblazers. I need to go on the call. Anthony Simons delivers just a gut-wrenching, soul-crushing, game-winning shot with 0.2 seconds remaining to hand the Nets their fourth straight loss and their 14th in their last 17 games. I'm Eric Slater, Brooklyn Nets beat reporter for ClutchPoints.com. This is the Believe in Nets podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. And things are tough out here in Nets world right now, man. There, it's it's getting dark. People are calling for certain things. People are not happy, understandably. As I said, the Nets 3-14 and 14 over the last 17 games, 26 in offense, 22nd in defense during that span, dead last in three-point shooting, second to last in effective field goal percentage. And this was a game where it felt like the Nets could get back on track. They were heavy favorites. They even caught a crazy break before the game where DeAndre Ayton can't show up because there are sheets of ice in his neighborhood and he can't get out. You know, he's not playing. Shaden Sharp's not playing. This is a Portland team that is 10 and 29 on the season. They're just abysmal, honestly, to be frank. They're two and seven in January. And now both of those wins have come across against the Brooklyn Nets. And you know, not to be morbid, but the Blazers' seven losses during that span have come by an average of 22.3 points. They lost by 62 points to the Oklahoma City Thunder on January 11th. That was the fifth worst loss in NBA history. And yet, with all that going for the Nets, they can't capture a win. And it's indicative of a lot of problems this team is having right now. Once again, they had a lead, but they couldn't close late. They were up by nine points entering the fourth quarter. And then like that, blink of the eye, three minutes into the fourth, it's a one-point game. And Portland has all the momentum. The Nets are able to hang around. They tie it on a Cam Johnson layup with five seconds remaining. And then they come out of the timeout. Defensive miscommunication. They want to double. Spencer Dinwiddie doesn't come over. Anthony Simons hits the game winner, and it's over. And this is you – no, know, it's just – it's a terrible loss from a coaching perspective, from a player's perspective – and this is coming off another bad loss on Monday, two since I last potted. The Nets lost 96-95 in overtime to the Miami Heat, a game where they held the Heat to 31 points on, I think, 26% shooting in the first half. The Heat didn't make a three-pointer until 10 minutes left in this game. It 10 minutes left in the third quarter of that game, and yet the Nets don't have the offensive firepower. They don't have the defensive wherewithal down the stretch to get stops and to win that game and – the schedule is getting tough after this, man. It's it's not going to be easy out here in Nets world. I'm about to have Lucas Kaplan on from Nets Daily. Going to have a good talk about the Nets' current struggles, coaching players, different things that's going into it, an overarching perspective of where the team is at entering the trade deadline. Going to get to all of that after the theme music. And I'm joined now by Lucas Kaplan of Nets Daily. How are you, man? I appreciate you for coming on. Oh, of course. I'm doing pretty well, as best as can be expected, given you know what it's been like to watch the Nets out over these last couple weeks, really. I guess we'll get into that. But thanks for having me on, man. 
Yeah, you're doing better than most of Nets world then. We're uh, coming off a 105-103 loss to the Portland Trail Blazers, who are 10-29 on the season. That comes after a 96-95 overtime loss to the Miami Heat. The Nets have now lost four straight. Uh, they are now 3-14 and 14 over their last 17 games, 26th in offense, 22nd in defense during that span, dead last in three-point shooting, 29th in effective field goal percentage. Not a lot going right right now, but these last two games, I would say, I think most would agree, sting more for the Nets than others because these are two games that were extremely winnable. The Heat come out you know, on Monday and score 31 points in the first half. They don't make a three until 10, 10 minutes left in the third quarter. They really are they're on the back end of the back-to-back. They're shorthanded. They're really sleepwalking through the beginning of this game, and the Nets just don't have the offense to put them away. Then this game against Portland, they're without Shane Sharp and DeAndre Ayton. The Nets are desperately in need of a win. You think this is one they have to get, and they collapse in the fourth quarter after leading by nine at the beginning of the fourth. Obviously, Anthony Simons hits a game-winning shot. Just focusing on this Portland game, what were your takeaways watching this one and kind of looking at what the Nets were trying to do on both ends? I mean, the thing I've been thinking over the last few games is that they've become the team that we expected, I think, before the season. You know, early in the season, I was on here, we talked about how the drop defense has some ups and downs, but they're rebounding well. The offense has been great. They're shooting threes well, you know, kind of the reverse of what we all thought. But now that's unfolded. Uh, Jacques Vaughn has leaned on the switching. And as a result, and um, perhaps due to opponents shooting slightly more, I guess, normally from three, the Nets seem like a good defensive team that just can't get buckets. I mean, you hold Portland to 105 points. You hold the Heat to that 31-point first half. And as you said in the opener, they just don't have the offense to get it done. You know, when I'm watching, re-watching the Heat game, it's like, okay, the Heat are making a run, and the offense is really just asking Mikhail Bridges to create something out of nothing every time down. And I kind of had to take a step back and be like, wow. You know, imagine saying that a year and a half ago. You know, I don't know if Nets fans truly grasp what – type of player he was at the start of last season and what he's being asked to do now. And I'm not trying to make this all about him, but it feels like a microcosm of their issues now. Decent defensive team switching, just the offense has been brutal. Yeah. I, and honestly, I think, you know, over this recent 17 game stretch and even these last three games, I think the offensive issues obviously have been extremely glaring. Like the defense has gotten better, but there's still issues on that end, I feel like, compared to where we thought they were going to be. Like, they're up by four with a minute 48 left last night. They allow Portland to score on the final four possessions of the game. Like, they can't get stops in the biggest moments. And I think that there was a little bit of this team being overrated based on the actual defensive personnel. Like, this team just have a lot of guys that I feel like had labels thrown on them. Like, you know, Mikael Bridges is like an elite defender. He hasn't been an elite defender since he's been in Brooklyn. Cam Johnson's elite three-point shooter. Like his percentages are good, but he does not shoot like an elite three-point shooter in a lot of these games. So there's just a lot of labels there. But going, you know, back into this Portland game, like you're talking about what they're trying to do offensively on both sides of the ball. And, you know, in Mikael Bridges' standpoint, he's he didn't play terrible in this game. He played pretty well initially and down the stretch had some struggles. Obviously, like you said, he's being asked to do so much more than what he's accustomed to. And it's almost like you know, that stretch to close last season where he was at around 27 points per game on 50, 40, 90. Like it was awesome and everybody was loving it, but you know, it's never going to be a bad thing having a stretch like that, but it almost, it inflated expectations so much higher than what, 
you know, he is probably going to, you know, top out as, as an offensive player. And I think that you're seeing the scouting report is out on him a little bit more after that stretch, you know, heading we're midway through the season now. And some of these struggles are starting to come from the, to the forefront. And the Nets just don't have the offensive firepower from top to bottom. It's something that we'll get into. But just, you know, focusing on the defense here first, like I said, you know, they can't get stops on the final four possessions of the game. They go to double Anthony Simons on the second to last possession of the game, which is the same thing that got them burned in this last matchup. And Portland, you know, misses a shot, but ends up with an easy putback because the Nets are out of position for a defensive rebound. Mm-hmm. And this final possession is really what got me. You're coming out of a timeout. The plan, I guess, is to double Anthony Simons again, who isn't even really having a great game. And like I said, it's the same thing that got you burned last time. But then they don't actually they don't even actually do it because Spencer Dimwitty doesn't come over on the double. Mikhail Bridges allows Anthony Simons to drive left into the lane easily and hit a floater. And it's like, this is just, this stretch is just a microcosm of everything that's going wrong with this team. They don't have great point of attack defense. A guy like Mikhail Bridges is supposed to be elite in that area, has underperformed greatly. That's forcing them to double. They don't even execute the double. And it's like, there's no coaching and the also the, the ability to get stops, the ability, the talent in these moments just isn't there. Just what was your reaction to that play? Because it was just a really bad sequence from the Nets and from the coaching perspective. Yeah, you know, in general, I, I like the idea of doubling down the stretch of the clock is, you know, under 10 seconds. And it forces the offense to make multiple decisions rather than just letting a guy play one-on-one. And, you know, in the NBA, guys are so talented that they can create looks for themselves. So I don't mind the strategy, even though, you know, Mikhail's supposed to be this elite point of attack defender, whatnot. Um, he has to provide a little more resistance there, but he's calling so early for that double that you can tell it's what was discussed right in the huddle. And Dinwiddie is just late as can be. You know, Mikhail forces Simons the way that the double's supposed to come, but Dinwiddie's not there yet. And you know, Simons hits a tough floater off the off the same foot, same hand release. But like you said, it's a microcosm. Maybe the reputations of these defensive guys has been overstated, but then they're also not doing the little things well. So the personnel, you know, probably isn't the 2008 Celtics or the 2004 Pistons or what have you, but they're not even making up for it by always being connected on a string, you know, cleaning up, as I, as you said, you know, the little things like that, Um, coaching, defense, individual efforts, you know, combined with shots, not falling, just making it harder to get back and stay matched up. It's, it's just an avalanche avalanche right now. And I wish I had some more acute analysis, but when the problems stack like this, you know, they're kind of inextricable from one another. Yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it. And just on this play in particular, like you talk about the coaching, you know, along with this stuff and Mikhail's calling for the double and Dimwitty's late, but it almost looked like Dimwitty's so late that it almost looked like he was just confused as to mm-hmm. whether or not he was supposed to double. So it's like, we're coming out of a timeout on the biggest possession of the game. How is it not glaringly clear what you're doing in that moment? Like for Spencer to be late in that, on that double is, you know, it's just mind boggling. And then what is also mind boggling is why is Dennis Smith Jr. Not on the floor in that situation? It looks like that. That's what you were thinking too. Like why is Spencer Dimwitty, who's one of the worst, probably the worst two defenders on the team. Why is he the guy making that rotation? Like I, these decisions, I just, I don't understand it. And I'm not like the rest of, you know, Nets Twitter. That's like just fire jock and crucifying jock because 
you know, like there are glaring limitations, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but this coaching, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not good. It's not doing them any favors right now. Like that, that play is just a, that's really an indictment of coaching. No. Yeah. I mean, I agree. Obviously I think when a team starts underperforming the basic reaction from any fan base is going to look at the coach, especially when there aren't obvious, maybe yeah. it's the easiest know, thing to look at. It's it yeah, is. It's the easiest thing to say. Because it's also the least recognizable. It's the easiest thing yeah. to blame. You know, yes, Mikhail's not shooting well, Camp Thomas not shooting well, whatever. But if you want to put blame somewhere and you don't have to be specific, you can just say the coaching, the team's not playing like it's supposed to. And, you know, I've been with you. I think we've had the same sort of mindset on that. But team 16 and 24, they're 28th in offense in January, you know, 10th in defense. But you can't look at the team and say the coaching has been good it's often hard to assess what value is coming from coaching that's kind of true in, in in a lot of sports but specifically basketball but the coaching hasn't been good the offense just feels so flat and monotonous and you know isolation pick and roll heavy there's there's not a lot of ball movement and that i think earlier in the season was not a baseless critique but i think had less merit when they were playing so well even though it, they weren't a super interesting team from an x's and o's dynamic but aside from like immediate out of timeout plays now the offense is just awful to watch i mean oh it, it's just and really are, hard to get that's there. they are probably a bottom three watch in the nba mm -hmm. right now They're just, just not interesting games it's it's brutal and if you're a nets fan that's sticking through it you're you're a real one because it's uh, yeah it's tough what do you like? What are the most interesting things on a night to night basis? Like Claxton is always good for some fun defensive plays. Like I had a I had fun time watching him guard Simons. I mean, anytime he switched on to a guard like that, it's always fun. Yeah. Dennis is cool with the defense for for a few minutes a game. But last night, I think, was the inevitable. OK, his lack of shooting is finally yeah. killing us. I think they were kind of due for a game like that. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Watford, O'Neal, they do some fun things yeah. off the bench sometimes. I think, I think Last night you would say it was last night you'd say it's Lonnie Walker and it's yeah. a guy who's not even he's on a minutes restriction so he's probably the Nets best player in the first half and then he barely plays in the second half because you know obviously that's something that's going on with the performance staff but what you just said like Dennis Smith Jr. for example a guy who you know he does these good things on defense but he has you know these offensive limitations that make it tough and I think that that's a good segue into talking about the Nets issues just as a whole on both sides of the ball. And I think a lot of it goes back to what they have in the backcourt and in terms of, you know, their ball handlers and things along those lines. And I tweeted this out. I think it might've been during the Cavs game in Paris. And, you know, there, if you look at their backcourt, you know, you got obviously Spencer Dinwiddie, Cam Thomas, Mikhail Bridges, Dennis Smith Jr. It's like, when you look at all of these guys, there's, any any combination, any assortment of these players that you put on the floor, they all have glaring weaknesses mm -hmm. to their game. And it makes the lineups, you know, like everybody is, you know, clamoring and, you know, crucifying Jock Vaughn about the lineups and all these things. And it's like, it's not an easy job with when you look at this backcourt because they all have things where it's a trade-off for whatever guy you put in the game. Like Mikhail Bridges, you know, struggles handling the ball and he has a, he's not even playing well defensively, but just you know, in his archetype, he struggles handling the ball. He's not a high usage guy. You look at Spencer Dinwiddie, he can pass and score, but he's a bad defender. You look at Cam Thomas, he can score, but he's not a good passer. And he's a bad defender. Dennis Smith Jr. gives you the defense, but he can't shoot and isn't an offensive threat. So it's like whatever combination of these guys that you put together, 
there's something that you're giving up and it makes a lot of the lineups very imbalanced and glaring weaknesses that teams are able to expose. So, you know, what do you see in that regard? I, I'm really glad you brought that up because even from the beginning of the year, it felt like, okay, no matter what, this team's going to make a huge trade-off every time they make a sub. Yep. Like, damn, we're, we're really sacrificing shooting right now for some defense. And I think what we've seen is that it's hard to build a cohesive 48 minutes because you're, you can't play the same way for the whole game when you're mm-hmm. taking out two guys that can shoot and score but can't defend. And all of a sudden now you're bringing in guys that can defend but can't score. They don't feel cohesive, not from game to game, but like from quarter to quarter. And, you know, maybe that's part of the explanation for why the offense and, you know, in in months past and weeks past, the defense has been so bland. It's just easy to establish identity. But I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, The one thing I would say to kind of tie this all together about coaching is I don't think the record is a sin. You know, I think we knew this this year was going to be what it is, a holding pattern year. But, you know, maybe they should probably be closer to 500 than eight games under. That's yeah. a failure. I'll give you that. But the long-term outlook, we're about where we thought we would be in January. Yeah, The team is just not fun to watch, though. It, it, it's, it's a slog. And I think yeah. that's the most disappointing part. You know, I think Nets fans would be much more able to grasp and enjoy this team if it was if it was more enjoyable to watch you know i know that's kind of redundant but that is definitely the most frustrating part about this team yeah and, and going just coaching going, ends up yeah just going off what you said i think you made a good point about the lack of cohesion of this team and you were you know responding to my point about all the trade-offs that they make in terms mm-hmm. of some of these backcourt guys and i think that when you're talking about this team's offensive you know offense and defensive struggles that lack of cohesion and all of that is something that I've talked about. And it's like you look at this roster and the Nets are they're deep with guys who are, you know, good rotation players, mm-hmm. you know, in the NBA. Like they are eight, nine, ten deep in that regard. But something that I've continued to say is there's no established pecking order and the roles are consistently changing of what they're asking some of these guys to do, whether it be, you know, a Cam Thomas or a Spencer Dimwitty or a Dennis Smith Jr or even, you know, a guy like Lonnie Walker, that's injury related, or Trenton Watford, like playing some nights and not playing for 10 straight games and then coming back in. It's like all of these things when you're bouncing in and out of these roles, which is a product of the deficiencies that a lot of these guys have, you know, just in terms of having holes in their games, it makes it so hard to get in a rhythm, get in a flow and establish stuff. And I think that's why this is such a brutal watch because there's just a lot of the times it seems like, there's just no plan. There's no, you know, whatever. And you tweeted out the video of Anthony Simons' game winner. And I said that, you know, this seems like a good encapsulation of where the Nets are. Yeah. You know, they're always, they're retreating. They're looking around for answers. They're searching for something. They're on their heels. And every game, it just feels like this Nets team, like you said in the second half of that Miami game, they're just looking for something to do. And there's often not a plan of attack. And I think that that's really indicative of, you know, Jock Vaughn's searching for answers right now. And a lot of that is obviously tied to maybe some deficiencies he has as a coach. And then also what he's working with in terms of having holes in the skill sets of these guys. You know, I wanted to touch on some individual guys because lately, you know, even though the defense hasn't, they haven't been able to finish games down the stretch. I guess you could say it's been better in these last three games. The offense the offense is just brutal, man. And when you look at some of these guys, like I think Spencer Dinwiddie is an interesting guy to talk about because over the last three games entering 
this Portland matchup. He's averaging 3.3 points and 3.0 assists. He's attempting 5.0 shots per game, shooting 20% from the field. And he takes one shot in the first half of this Portland game. Nets Twitter seems like it's about to implode. They want to trade him at halftime. And then he scores 19 points in the second half of five of nine shooting. And he's a guy where, you know, you're talking about the Nets offense just being such a slog. It feels like when he's playing at a decent level and he's attacking, everything just feels different for this Nets team. And in that second half, it's like, where has this been? You know, it's it, it's so strange to see him just turn it on and start attacking like that when he's literally been a bystander for the, you know, almost now a week or two, and especially in these last three games. So what have you seen with him? And just was that strange for you to see that switch just kind of flip? Yeah, it's strange, but not surprising. I mean, you never want to question what's going through a guy's head, but I mean, he seems like checked out. Uh, you know, it's hard. Listen, he's the primary ball handler, and he's taking five shots a game. He There was that KD quote the other day about Booker, like, don't worry, I'll insert myself into the game. Spencer Dinwiddie can insert himself into the game whenever he wants. He has enough opportunities to do so. And when we looked at the roster coming into the season, my biggest worry was like there was one guy on the team that can dribble pass and shoot reasonably well. That was Dinwiddie. You know, Mikhail's made strides as a ball handler, but it's tough to rely. Cam Thomas, whatever. What does the offense do when the one guy that can dribble pass and shoot just relegates himself to the high quad, the wing, and just stands there and will only take – you know, grenade threes. That's why his field goal percentage is so, so low. It's, I think, before last night's game, it was the lowest in the NBA. So many of the shots are, I'm not involved in the offense. Okay, catch the ball, three seconds left. Here goes a prayer. But I, that's what I've seen from him, that he's just not willing to insert himself as the Nets need him to. And, you know, I, I don't know where else, what you can question. I don't think he's dealing with a nagging injury. You know, Brian Lewis of the New York Post has chronicled going back to his first stint that he's one of the best conditioned guys in the NBA. So at some point you have to start asking the tough questions about why Spencer Dinwiddie is, is playing like this right now. Yeah, and I I broached it early in the season when he had that quote where he was talking about, you know, the Nets have a bright core here. They have all these guys. He named like seven or eight other guys on the roster and he left himself out and his mm -hmm. body language during the response wasn't, the most jovial was how I put it. So, you know, this is, it's no secret where a lot of these guys stand. And I think that this is something that could be playing into their struggles on top of, you know, the issues they have in terms of pecking order and other things is we're, you know, what are we now? We're less than a month out from three weeks away from the trade deadline. And, you know, a lot of these guys are vets, not to say that like they don't care. They're playing hard. I think most of them, but in a guy like Dinwiddie's case specifically, I don't think that, it's anywhere near unreasonable to question, you know, where is he seeing himself? You know, is he questioning where he's going to be past this trade deadline or even past this season? I think that's what, what a, log a lot of people would be thinking logically. And it's shown up in his engagement and his willingness to attack. I asked Jock Vaughn after the Miami game, you know, are you getting what you want from Spencer offensively? Because he seems relatively uninvolved. And Jock said, you know, the playing time is going to be performance-based, but he said – our offense is set up where the ball handler can attack and create advantages for others. And there's no blockade stopping players from doing that. So you read in between the lines, pretty much saying like, we need Spencer to mm -hmm. attack and do more. And that's really like, you asked the question in Paris when after the Cavs game, where you talked about the offense and Jock pointed to, we need guys who can create advantages. We don't have a lot of that. That's like, you talked about the Cam Thomas play where 
He drove in that game, kicked to the high quad. They get a corner three on the extra pass. Like, that's what the Nets don't have. And you talk about dribble, pass, and shoot. They really have two guys who have been doing or able to do that consistently. And it's Spencer Dimwitty and it's Cam Thomas. And Dimwitty really particularly because Cam Thomas isn't a high-level passer. So Dimwitty being checked out and looking like this is – it's really like a death sentence for this Nets mm-hmm. offense, honestly. And if he – you know, and then a lot of Nets fans want to trade him, which I understand because he's 30 years old. He's on an expiring contract. These last three weeks, he's not playing well. But he he was playing some pretty like high level basketball for a stretch before that. Yeah, and it's like if you if you trade Dinwiddie, I I've been saying this since the beginning of the season. If you trade Dinwiddie, you better get somebody else in the door who can at least do something in terms mm-hmm. of offensive creation, because otherwise. We're going to be looking at what we've been looking at for the last two weeks, you know, for the rest of the season. You need something to a stable ball handling presence just to at least help the guys out. And like this season is a transitional year and that is the overarching theme of the season. It's a team in between stages. They made up their mind last summer when they didn't trade Mikhail, they didn't trade Claxton. All right. You know, they made their bet. It's time to lie in it, but it's not good for anybody, you know, anybody's development when they don't have a reliable ball handler. And I think that theme of of the transition year is also impacting a lot of these guys. Like they know they're on the trade block. They know nobody's future is set. You know, I think the only guy we can say is really set in Brooklyn is Mikhail Bridges reading between the lines. And even then, you know, there's a reason people keep bringing his name up as a trade value guy, because it would maybe make a little sense for the Nets to explore it. But, you know, if they decided they're not going to tear it down. They're not going to do full-scale rebuild without their picks, you know, as they did seven, eight years ago when Marks took over. Fine. That's a conversation for another day. But if even if the team is middling, it, it's just – it's not good for anybody involved, the fans, the players, the secondary guys, when there's nobody able to handle the ball. So as you said, if they trade Dinwiddie, you know, fine from a roster perspective, a trade, you know, whatever. I have no gripe with that, but – you better make sure you get somebody that can organize offense in, yeah. in some capacity. I want to talk about, you know, we'll transition a little bit here into more, you know, large scale overarching themes as we he- head into the trade deadline. But mm-hmm. one more guy I just wanted to touch on yeah. a little bit is Cam Johnson, because, you know, you look at this Nets roster and their highest paid player is Ben Simmons, who's obviously not playing. And like, we'll talk about that when whatever concrete news comes out, but the other two, the highest two paid active players are Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson. And Mikhail yeah. Bridges is obviously being put in a position where he's being asked to do a lot. And he's he's had good moments this season. He's had a lot more bad moments of late. But he's trying and he's in these positions. A guy like Cam Johnson, who is being paid even more than Mikhail, I think, just signed a four-year $94.5 million contract this offseason. For a guy who's making that kind of money, like I don't think people – I think people, for the most part, know what he was, thought maybe he could have a little bit more to his game than he did. But for a guy who's making that kind of money, there's just a lot of games, man, where it feels like he's just another guy out there. And there's, you know, there's not a lot of impact out there. And, you know, I said this before, but for a guy who's regarded as an elite shooter, he misses a lot of open looks. Like in that Miami game, you know, he had some open looks that could have been daggers in that second half and just, bad misses on wide open shots and his percentage is still good. He's shooting 39% from three on like six attempts per game this season, but he's so streaky. 
There's not a lot of consistency consistency there. And, you know, we talk about him being an elite shooter and he's highly regarded. And he's a very, very good shooter. But I think maybe it, it could be overrating him a little bit in that regard. He's a guy who's good, he's, but he's under 40% for his career. And I don't think guys who are elite shooters miss, you know, open looks some, uh, to the extent of what we've been seeing lately. So just your opinions of what you've seen from him. Yeah, I totally get how, you know, you could look at his percentage. I think it's 39 point something. I think it might be. 39.3. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But it's 35% from above the break. I think 30, 34.5. So rounds up here. Yeah. And then 47% from the corners. So when he's bringing the ball up in these actions and he's not in the corners or he's one pass away on the wing, he's not really hitting these shots. You know, it's when the ball gets kicked to you maybe often from an extra pass in the corner where he's been really reliable. So, you know, no, he's not an offense creator and watching him occasionally try to do it is like watching someone try to draw water from a stone. He just doesn't have the ball handling or athletic capabilities. And with all that being said, he's a good player. Mm -hmm. he, he He's just not going to, even if he, like last night he was six of nine, that's about the best you're going to get on this team with no ball handling. He can't, yeah work himself into 15 quality looks a game. With, and I think that's the yeah. kind of disparity in his impact and then his, you know, perceived value, especially and on that's Twitter. With no ball handling is what you mm -hmm. said. That's the mm -hmm. importance of what I'm talking about with a guy like Dimwitty of what the Nets are lacking. Because when a guy like Dimwitty then, it's like, it's not just that you're losing that production from that particular guy, obviously. It's you're making everybody else's job so much more difficult. And people you know, are obviously have been tough on Mikhail Bridges for his struggles over this recent stretch. And I've said that I think people underestimate a little bit how much better he can look if he's being, if he's allowed to slide mm -hmm. back into a role that he's more comfortable in. And that might be more than what he did in Phoenix. It yeah. can still be more than that, but just less than what he's doing right now. Because I think it's one of those things like he's to me, he's obviously a better player than he was when he got here at the deadline last year. And that's saying a lot like he's a better passer. He's a better ball handler. He's making not only the skip passes, but also kind of hitting the roll man sometimes. I think I don't think the defense is gone forever. I think I would like to see it with a scaled back offensive role. So I had this tweet the other day like I don't know. I don't know if it's on the nets, but I would assume it would be. When he scales back the offense and he's hitting corner threes a lot and, you know, occasionally second side actions and running with bench units and, you know, 30 minutes a game that are a little bit more stress-free, you're going to see the improvements that he's made. He's, I think, going to be the best version of himself. I'm pretty confident in saying that, but you're not seeing it right now. So it feels like he's regressed, which is understandable. It feels like Cam Johnson has regressed because – He's kind of suffering from those issues on a larger scale because instead of creating opportunities that go awry, like he literally can't create them. He even the, the, the opportunities he's kind of the DHOs, the pick and rolls he's running now are a big step up from Phoenix. Like yeah. he'll be a guy that creates value just by existing on the court. He doesn't yeah. turn the ball over. Defenses respect him. Decent positional size, not a bad defender. Like, that guy pops when he's the fourth or fifth best player in the lineup, not yeah. your secondary creator. Mm. And it, it was – and from Bridges' standpoint, and even Johnson a little bit, like he had that game three against Philadelphia last year. But Bridges mm – -hmm. 
you know, he was, like I said before, the expectations were elevated because he was doing things last season that really made you think like, oh, can he be a little bit more? Like I, I said it when the Nets picked him up and after watching his first few games with the Nets last year, like if he could start being a consistent pull-up three-point shooter, that it was yeah. going to completely change his game. And I, I put the numbers out, like in Phoenix, he shot like 30% on, you know, like 0.5 pull-up threes per game. And then over a stretch with Brooklyn last season, he was shooting like 39% on like two pull-up threes per game. Mm -hmm. So he like quadrupled his volume and was shooting a much better percentage. And you were seeing defenses start to respect him a little bit more. And it was opening up some drives and some other things. And that pull-up three-point shooting has regressed back to what it was before this season. And yeah. I think that, you know, like I said, expectations were just elevated do I think that McHale, you know, can't be a good guy who can, you know, create some on-ball offense and do some other stuff? I think he can. But as you said, I think the way you put it was good. The best version of himself is not what he's doing right now. And I think also, as you said, it would it's reasonable to expect that he's going to be better for this when he gets to be, you know, when he gets to slide back into a role that more suits what his skill set is. So having said that, transition now into a little bit of more overarching talk about the Nets. Obviously, we're a month out from the trade deadline. A lot of Nets Twitter is trade everybody, trade McHale, tear it down. Let's rebuild without our picks, which I said last week on my podcast. I think I think people underestimate how bleak that would be. Not saying that it's not the wrong, it's not the right or wrong decision. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying. I think, you know, as is the case with every fan base, people overestimate what you're going to get back for certain guys in trades. But just talking about this Nets team, you know, is this Nets team far off from where you expected them to be? And what are your opinions on, you know, how they've kind of handled things entering the season? You know, short term, a little long term, not really. I think it's important to remember that this was largely the plan and being, okay, 16 and 24 or six. 24 or 23, um, instead of 20 and 20, that's four win, four losses that maybe should be turned into wins. It's aggravating in the moment, but the long-term direction of the franchise is, this is what we thought it was going to be. You know, I, we all anticipated them being a tough offense to watch. I mean, they've been tougher than expected. You know, one of, as you said, the bottom three least enjoyable teams in the league to watch, but you know, the front office, denied both in their outright comments and reading between the lines last summer that they would do the full rebuild. And this is where we are. I think it's, it's a tough ask to put fans through this when the product looks like this. And that's why they're rightfully upset. I don't know if the ire is always directed at the right place, but in many ways, this was predetermined. Yeah. This type of season was predetermined. And if that, infuriates you as a fan if you're mad about that as a fan i can't blame you but that is where i think the ire should be directed more than coaching even though we both have things we can nitpick about it even certain players are underperforming but this deadline is the first juncture of the plan it's a it's a three to five year plan that they have and we're going to get our first glimpse into how they feel it's going and to what they feel their next steps should take. So really we're coming up to the most pivotal point of the season for sure. And it's, it's always the case with, you know, just sports in general fan bases, especially in basketball and maybe baseball, also sports where you play a lot more games that mm -hmm. 
there's a lot of recency bias at play and how things have played out. And I understand it. Like, I think this Nets team is underperforming. Yeah. I think that they're better than what they've shown over this last month plus. And I think a lot of that says stuff about coaching. But as I said, I think a lot of that is going to sort itself out, you know, because we're approaching the trade deadline. I think that there's going to be a much clearer picture of what this team is supposed to be. Because as I said, they're, you know, a team that's deep with a lot of rotation pieces, a lot of veterans. And when we get past the trade deadline, I expect them to be active. Some of that's sorted out. There's, you know, a little bit of a more established pecking order. It might not look good. They might still be losing games, but at least like you'll know what certain guys are supposed to be doing on given nights. And when you know, I talk about recency bias, when you look at this Nets team, they were, you know, after they had that Phoenix win against Kevin Durant in there, they were 13 and 10 on the season. They were outperforming expectations. And I think a lot of people felt really good about them. You know, Mikhail Bridges had had you know, a slow start to the season, but he was really starting to pick up during that stretch where. They won, I think, eight of nine or seven of eight. Mm -hmm. He was having his best stretch of his career in terms of scoring and efficiency. So they're 13 and 10. And since then, you know, they've lost what I say, 14 of their last 17, which is obviously bad. And there's a lot of issues. But it's like if you take a step back and like you said, if you look at the overarching picture, really only like a few games off from where mm -hmm. you recently would have expected this team to be. So I don't think that it's as bleak as some people like I see some people tweeting, you know, this morning and last night that the Nets have they're in the worst position out of any team in the NBA. And like, do I think they're in a great position? No, but they have like the third or fourth most picks in the NBA from a tradeability standpoint. Like they're going to have some pieces that they move off. That number is going to increase. Like, I do think that, you know, it's not the clearest path to contention, but I don't think that they're like in the basement of the NBA in terms of what you're going to see from certain uh, other franchises. Mm -hmm. Just talking about the trade deadline quickly, wanted to touch on that because obviously there's, you know, it's going to center on the Nets impending free agents, which is um, Dorian, uh, Royce O'Neal, Spencer Dimwitty, Nick Claxton. Um, and then obviously Dorian Finney-Smith isn't an impending free agent, but another guy that's going to be involved there. The Nets have been linked to DeJounte Murray, it seems like endlessly, and those rumors are starting to gain some steam where it seems like there's really some validity. Mike Scotto, friend of the pod, reported today that the Nets are shying away from Atlanta's asking price of two first-round picks. There was also reporting from Jake Fisher of Yahoo Sports that said that the Nets are a, an ideal landing spot from Murray's side of the situation. So his camp likes the idea of him coming to Brooklyn, which makes sense because team that desperately needs a high usage ball handler, a chance to get out of Trey Young's shadow, come to a major market, do things like that. Like, why wouldn't he want that? So opinions on the DeJounte Murray fit quickly, and then we'll touch on some of the other Nets players before we round this out. Yeah, as you said, obviously DeJounte wants to come here. I, I don't see why he wouldn't. Gets all the ball handling opportunity in the world without a huge, you know, he's not going to be blamed if they don't make the playoffs, which it's trending that way. I don't really like it. He is a guy that will run a lot of pick and roll in isolation and take a lot of mid-range jumpers. That's his best skill. He's shooting at a career high on pull-up threes and mid-range jump shots. And, you know, his true shooting, his efficiency stats have finally made it to league average because of that. He's not really that type of offensive guy the Nets need. He doesn't get to the rim a ton. I wouldn't call him an extremely advanced passer. Don't get me wrong, he'd make the team better. I don't think the appeal is really the on-court fit. I think it's 
the Nets only want to give up one first round pick, right? That's what the Scotto report is kind of hinting at. If they do that, they still got all these picks to make the next big star trade down the line. I yeah. think if you're looking at the other guy they're linked to, Mitchell, here's the downside of that. You're going to have to wait at least a year probably to next deadline. The cost is probably going to be higher. So you have to endure more misery of this team. And it makes that next star trade and next moves a little bit harder to pull off in addition to his bigger contract. So if you want to talk me into Murray that way, I can see it. I don't really love the basketball fit, although I do acknowledge he would make the rest of the season a little bit less miserable. Yeah. And when you're, when you're talking about Murray, like I don't think anybody has, you know, maybe some people do, at least I don't have aspirations that he's going to be like this all-star level guy and Mm -hmm. that he's going to completely just carry this Nets offense. Because like you said, like he's, he's a mid-range heavy guy. Like I was looking at the numbers from cleaning the glass and he ranks, you know, he's towards the top of the league, like in the 80th percentile in mid-range attempts and frequency and things along those lines. And he's shooting really well. And, you know, the Nets are a team that's lacking pull-up jump shooting, you know, we would like to see it from three, I think, and getting some more attempts at the rim, something that Murray doesn't do at a very high rate. But, you know, the whole conversation around surrounding Murray, I think, is getting a guy who's, you know, a solid player, but at a mm-hmm. depreciated value. So if you're a guy, if you're a team that's trying to, you know, swing on a guy that is, you know, valued below where a lot of people think that he should be based on some you know, the fit not being great there in Atlanta, I can see it. Like if the Nets could come away with Murray, you know, giving up only one of their first round picks or like Royce and, you know, trying to reroute another guy and having their chest of draft draft assets, you know, left over, you know, it's, it's nothing that like, I think you should be jumping over the moon about, but it's, it's fine. Like it'll help their product short term. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I don't think teams are going to be jumping at his contract in the future but i do think that he has at least a chance to revitalize his value and i don't think that his contract is going to be one that's immovable in the future so i think that that could you know factor into the conversation there um we'll get more information on that like those rumors really seem like they're picking up steam Mm -hmm. now getting into the next remaining guys as i said i think it would center around spencer dimwitty royce o'neill dorian finney smith nick claxton i'm going to put you on the spot real quick if you had to guess which of those guys are on the team and which aren't post-trade deadline, what would you say? I would say Nick is and Dorian is. I think Royce and Spencer are gone. That's just conjecture. But Dorian, is, re- is I think, has another two years after this. Um, I think he has one and then a player option. One and then a player option. So if yeah. you think he's going to pick up his player option, it's really feasible that he's on the next version of potentially contending Nets. If yeah. not, he, you can still trade him next year. So I think that gives the Nets enough flexibility to keep him around. Plus, everybody loves him. Nets front office, like he's a beloved teammate. I think that helps. I think Claxton is gone if they trade for Murray because I think with the luxury tax threshold, it's doable, but I think it'll be just a little complicated to keep Murray and Claxton on the roster for next year while getting below the luxury tax. Yeah, um, I just I just tweeted about yeah. that. There's actually there's actually something that makes that more interesting because Murray has a 13.4 million dollar trade kicker, mm. which is it's kind of weird. Bobby Marks reported on this because he has a trade kicker. Atlanta is required to pay it, 
but it still counts to the cap sheet of the team that acquires him. So that means that his cap hit's going to be, I think, $28.2 million next season. If the Nets are trying to re-sign Clacks at, say, like maybe $20 million or a little below, they have $117 million committed to eight players right now. Luxury tax next season is one hundred seventy-two. I'm not going to get into the math too much and bore everybody here, but pretty much like you said, like if they're trying to trade for Murray and re-sign Claxton, they're going to have little to no flexibility to fill out the remaining five mm-hmm. spots on their roster. So that's, I think that's kind of unlikely uh, of a direction for them to go. Um, you have any more thoughts and I'll get my take. Yeah, sure. I just, I, I personally would not be willing to make that trade off. I'd rather keep Claxton around long. I just, I think he's a better player, honestly. Um, I, I can see how some would disagree. I think Royce, right. He's an expiring. It's like, do him a favor, send him to a good team, maybe get a pick back. It just seems like the best, like, why wouldn't you? Um, and he can help, he can help somebody good three, the best three point shooter he's ever been in his career, you know, decent defender, um, good extra passer playmaker, actually kind of a great one. Just can't really attack the rim, but a lot of teams could use that. And then, I think teams around the NBA know that this is not Spencer Dinwiddie. I think yeah. he's earned enough credibility. He's not a star, but he's earned enough credibility for teams to look at him, contact his reps, and say, all right, you're going to look more like the Dinwiddie that was playing next to Luca than the Dinwiddie you've been in January of 2024, right? And he'll say, yeah, I hate it here. And then a team will trade for him. Yeah, so I think and, that's how it goes. That's my prediction. And for in Spencer's case, like a guy who's produced in high level, like playoff games. Mm-hmm. Like he's not a, yeah. like, you know, he, he's obviously like, this is probably the worst version of him that you're going to see right now. Like he's a guy that can play and he's a guy that can help a contending team. Yeah. Like, do I, do I think the nets are going to get a lot for him? Like, do I think they're even going to get a first round pick for him? I'd say that's unlikely right now. I'd say that he's probably a salary filler. I don't have any inside information on that. It's just, you know, speculation so i'm not sure if i'm if i'm talking about how i expect that this all to play out you know i outlined the contingencies of claxton if they acquire murray just speaking on how i think it would play out i'd expect claxton to be on the team and expect them to re-sign him and then similar to cam johnson like kick the can down the road and make a decision on him in the coming years you said you think dorian finney smith will be on the team i I think that they'll trade him. And I don't know if this is just me hoping, like not hoping, but me being optimistic of thinking about what they should do. Because just looking at Dorian, like he's struggling maybe a little bit of late, but he he had a scorching hot start to the season. Yeah. He's 30 years old. Like, is his value ever really going to be higher than this? He's under team control for one or maybe two years. Like, unless the Nets just love Dorian and they're which they very well may, like it seems like they do based off of talking to people within the organization, they could keep him. Like it would not shock yeah. me, but like if they, they could see him on that contending that next window, but like if they were ever going to trade him, this just seems like you're going to get the most value for him that you're going to get with how he shot earlier in the year, the team amount of teams that are looking for a guy who can defend multiple positions the way that he can and shoot threes at that rate. Like, I'm not saying they are or are not going to trade him, but I think it would be a wise move to look into being able to move him. Royce, I don't know. You know, like there's connections to obviously Donovan Mitchell is a guy that's been linked to the Nets. You, you could kind of flesh out the conversation of he's really tight with Donovan. Does that impact how the Nets, you know, 
are going about that. There's reports that the Cavs want Royce O'Neal right now. So they could be looking at it from that perspective of trying to pitch Murray, uh, pitch Mitchell on a contract extension. And then Dimwitty, it seems like the writing's on the wall for him. He could be the filler in the DeJounte Murray conversations because Scotto also reported that Atlanta does not want to take any salary back beyond this year, which makes sense from their standpoint. So his number fits perfectly with Murray's number to be the salary filler in that trade and allowing them to just clear money off their books. So if I had a guess right now, I'd, I maybe Dimwitty and Finney Smith seem like guys who logically could be out the door, but you know, we'll get more information and we will discuss this more as we get closer to the trade deadline. Things are starting to heat up. Any parting thoughts on where on the state of Nets world as we, you know, sift through this three and 14 stretch? I would keep an, I haven't heard anything about this, but that makes me kind of suspicious. I would keep an eye out for Cam Thomas stuff. It's the extension year. Those extension talks are going to be something else. I'm yeah. a little surprised that I haven't heard anything about it. Um, but I, I just logically makes sense to me that they – I'm not saying they're going to trade him. I haven't heard anything or that they would or they should. But it, I would be surprised if we don't hear anything in the next three weeks about maybe snooping around if they can get a first for him. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like that would be too far-fetched. But other than that – I think we kind of wrapped it all up. It's tough right now, and it's tough to watch these games. They're not a super interesting team, but, you know, the the fun part of a transition team, if there is one, is that anything can change at any time, you know, and we Nets fans know in the NBA how quickly your team can totally roster a different group of 12 guys. So this might be the most fun time of the year that we're approaching. So let's yep. enjoy it, I guess. Yep. And anything can change at any, th any time on that Cam Thomas thing. You know, we've heard the stuff about Mikhail Bridges, probably at least for now being off the trade market. But outside of that, like anybody and everybody should be available for this Nets team and open for business. So things could get a major shakeup. There could be guys beyond what I even, what we even just discussed who are involved in things. So appreciate you for coming on Lucas. You guys can find all of Lucas's work at Nets daily and on Twitter at Lucas Kaplan underscore does so much great work, film breakdowns, everything along those lines. Appreciate you for joining, man, and I'll see you soon. All right, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Same to you. That does it for this episode of Believe in Nets on the Believe Podcast Network, your one-stop shop for everything happening across the sports and entertainment world. Hope you guys enjoyed the talk with Lucas. A lot of great insight into what has gone into these Nets struggles, where the team could look to go from here. Make sure you guys subscribe to Believe in Nets on all streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Smash the like button. Leave a five-star review if you can. That really goes a long way. I'm Eric Slater, Brooklyn Nets beat reporter for ClutchPoints.com. You can find all my work on ClutchPoints.com. Also, everything on my Twitter at Eric Slater underscore. Constant news, updates, analysis there. Nets got a tough stretch coming up. Things could get uglier before they get better, but we will be here through it all, providing constant updates, analysis on what is happening with this team. Have a few more West Coast games coming up before the Nets return home. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.